You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 11. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, today my guest is Richard Mandelbaum. Richard, in addition to seeing patients and practicing herbal medicine since 1997, he also teaches classes in clinical herbal medicine, medicine making, field botany, and wild edible plants and mushrooms. He is a founding partner, director, and teacher at the Arborvitae uh, School for Traditional Herbalism in New York City. And he's a faculty at uh, David Winston Center for Herbal Study in New Jersey. This is a school that I attended. And so Richard was one of my uh, teachers as well. So he also uh, is a faculty at the Tri-State College of Acupuncture in New York. Uh, Richard has been a student of native flora for over 25 years, and I'm always fascinated about that. Um, his uh, herbal practice, he blends uh, use of uh, medicinal plants with Chinese and Western herbal traditions. He's a professional member of the American Herbalist Guild, and he's also active in issues related to fair trade, sustainability, and social justice. Um, he lives in Brooklyn, but migrates back and forth from Brooklyn to Forestburg, New York. So I'm excited to have him on the show. So welcome again. Yeah, um, thank you so much. Uh, so Richard, um, I guess I wanted to start it by asking you, how did you become interested in herbal medicine? What was your journey? What was your path? Oh, yeah. So it depends if you want the 10-minute version or the three-hour version. <laughs> but, right. uh, yeah. But, no, I, it's, you know, when you were giving that biography of me, um, you paused at one point uh, when it mentioned our native flora. And that's really the core of it for me. So um, uh, uh, I could fill in the details depending on how Please. much you're interested, but long story short, yeah, when I, when I was a teenager, you know, probably like 14, 15 years old, um, big time of change for just about everybody, I um, started becoming inquisitive and interested in a lot of things around me, stars and birds and Buddhist uh, sutras and, um, and plants and... Um, I decided to start walking a lot more um, than um, uh, than most people do these days, and I just became very curious about trees in particular. That's sort of what first brought me, drew me in, and uh, just wanting to uh, know what they were. I realized I had not been raised learning uh, the plants at all, and along with learning birds and constellations and so on, I just kind of started teaching myself. And for whatever reason, more than those other things, the, the 
the plants really stuck with me. And um, I had just spent many years um, in my teens and uh, 20s, early 20s, studying uh, plants, uh, going out with field guides on my own, learning to identify uh, trees and then other plants and herbaceous plants um, and so on. And eventually that kind of, at first it was just pure curiosity. Like there wasn't anything else attached to it. It's just, I just found myself wanting to do it and wanting to learn and opening up that whole world for me. Looking back on it now, I think that it's a reflection of what I think is true for a lot of people. A lot of people I work with in my practice and a, a lot of students I have, which is that in the modern world, the modern, you know, quote unquote lifestyle, for lack of a better word, we're all many of us, I should say, not all of us, many of us are profoundly disassociated from who we really are and our relationships with the world around us. And we're not raised with things that for hundreds of thousands of years people have been raised with. And, um, and so eventually uh, interest in identifying plants and field botany which is really how I entered all of this. The plants themselves is how I entered all of this. Um, it went on from there to wild edible uh, foods and foraging because once you know your plants fairly well, then you read somewhere, oh, you can eat that and you know where a patch is. And, and so you get excited and go off and, and try it. And, um, and organic gardening and growing. And it, and it kind of it kind of uh, went off from there uh, for me at the same time as some of the social justice work and other things that I was doing, it all kind of was happening in parallel. Uh, but then, you know, eventually my eyes were opened up to herbal medicine as it really is, which again was not part of my childhood at all, um, completely foreign. And I found myself in Arkansas, very rural Arkansas, working in an organic garden. And there was an herbalist midwife there. And then we also all traveled up together to the Frontier Herb Fest, which doesn't happen anymore. In fact, um, at, the, at the most recent American Herbalist Guild conference, I was hanging out with someone from Frontier and sharing with them that that was a big game changer in my life. And, and she was delighted by that. Uh, and that's where I met, or not actually, uh, uh, not meet, but that's where I was exposed to uh, your quote unquote real life herbalists, you know, so David and Christopher Hobbs and uh, Amanda McQuaid Crawford and many others who are just completely inspiring and just blew my mind and opened things up to realize what this was all about. And I just knew right then, like, okay, this is, this is where this has all been heading. I had no idea, but this is where it's all heading. It led me to study more formally with David um, in his two-year program. This was back in the late 90s. My joke is it was in the previous millennium. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then uh, with William Lasassier and, and up at Rosemary Gladstar's place at Sage Mountain. And I'm just very lucky to have had the teachers that I've had, um, and 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 continuing my studies informally on my own as well. Um, to this day, what I love more than anything else is to just be with the the plants themselves, and to you know, if I'm teaching a class, I love to teach indoors about whatever subject. But if I can be outside 
with people with the plants that's you know that's the best um and yeah eventually starting to teach uh more and more over the years too which um today i probably divide my time fairly close to equally between uh practice and teaching which i i really like that balance actually that sounds great you were talking about um, starting to really explore plants and uh, starting on your own. Um, if there is someone who is listening to us right now and they want to kind of follow uh, in your uh, footsteps in this path, how would you recommend them to begin learning about the plants? And maybe maybe they're not ready quite for a more formal training, but what could they do on their own? Absolutely. So there's a lot of room for self-study. I mean, one of the things that I think is wonderful about herbal medicine is that it is not a question of having to get a degree before you can do anything with it. Um, I think that's really important for us all to keep in mind that it's the people's medicine, uh, that it's not, we don't want, in my opinion, right? Some herbalists might disagree, but in my opinion, we don't want an analog to a medical license where um, you have to get XYZ requirements under your belt before you're even allowed to touch it. I think these are gradations. So there is a lot of room for self-study. It is not... Um, it is not always the most efficient way to learn. Right. Um, it, can, it can take, so I taught myself botany for many years. Uh, I can just tell you that uh, it was a labor of love. I loved every minute. It's, it's what I wanted to do. So that's wonderful. Like what, what else can we want to achieve in life, but just doing in the moment what we want to do. But if you, but, but certainly I would have learned things a lot faster. <laughs> Had I sought out teachers, and it's the same thing with herbalism. Um, we, you know, uh, we eventually, I think, do need to be learning from uh, people who have amassed real-world experience, for whom it's not academic. Uh, uh, that you know, we can read all we want about something, but until we've really applied it and understand it and see it. It's not, it's not really real. And um, uh, so, uh, for instance, um, we could read all we want about what a particular herb, whether it's burdock root or red root or uh, ginkgo leaf or whatever we want to choose, is used for. We don't really understand it at all, in my opinion, until we actually use it and see it and see how it helps somebody or doesn't, um, if we've applied the knowledge correctly or not. So, so I do think uh, there's a tremendous place for self-study, but I do think um, whether it's formal school, I don't think everyone has to quote unquote enroll in a program necessarily, but learn from people who have that real world experience, I, I think is, is crucial. I completely agree with you because in some ways my journey was very similar where I started, I became a pharmacist first and then I got curious about herbs. Uh, and so when I started uh, learning about herbs, most of my uh, most of my exploration were through textbooks. And uh, initially, I really didn't experiment with them. And until I did, until I started drinking teas and until I started learning how to cook with them, it really didn't, it didn't really sink in. So you really don't, you, you don't know these plants until you really experience them. 
Absolutely, yeah. So one of the things I sometimes tell my students, which uh, is disconcerting for some of them, is that they don't actually learn anything at our school. So I run a school in New York with Claudia Keel, a fellow herbalist, and um, uh, and they kind of, some of them kind of look at me when I say that, like, what? We're, we're paying tuition to come here. What are you talking about? And what I mean by that is is that actually what people learn when it's abstract is they're really just learning what they have to go out and learn for real, right? Um, and it's only in applying it uh, and seeing it. And there are still things that I learned years ago that I will now see in the real world with a person in front of me and say, okay, ah, now I get that. Um, uh, and and that there's a big difference between those things. And And we live in a culture, I think, that worships the written word so much that if you can just kind of regurgitate something and sound smart, people respect that, even if you don't really understand it. And I think that's something to guard against uh, uh, within our our own community too. I completely agree. So I, I have a small course that I offer to pharmacy students. And so uh, it took me a number of years to come to this. But right now, one of the main assignments in the, uh, in the course is to make sub- six different preparations from a tea to decoction to syrup to vinegar to whatever it is. And I personally believe that this is the only way that the students will actually retain the information by by actually making something and remembering what it yeah. tasted like and how bitter it was or whatever it is. So, so I completely agree Absolutely. with you. So yeah. you, you mentioned that the exploration of botany at some point took you to gardening. Can you Talk to us a little bit about this. I know that you live in Brooklyn or uh, split your time. So uh, there are a lot of listeners of this podcast would live in the city, but there might be someone who's not. And so when you're thinking of whether it is gardening on your windowsill or whether it is gardening, you know, uh, next to having a beautiful garden next to your house, like how, how do you approach this? What do you actually grow? Are there specific medicinal plants that you would recommend someone to experiment with and maybe have in your garden? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so much to talk about there. Um, I I do think, just as a general uh, preface to answering your question, I do think one thing that is wonderful about herbalism that we just don't want to lose, and as time goes on, I keep returning to more and more in how I teach about herbalism, is that it is ultimately about our relationship with the plants and with our planet. And I think herbal medicine has the real potential to be a paradigm shift for people's understanding of themselves and the world around them. And um, I think we should really treasure that. And I think American herbalism right now holds that and we should not lose it. Um, I think there is pressure to lose it as, as things go mainstream. So just to mention gardening, whether it's gardening or wildcrafting or botany, these are where our relationship with the plants as plants happens, right? Not just as uh, bottles on a shelf. And uh, I think it's just uh, just crucial that we continue to emphasize that. And um, so I, you know, I, I think there are a lot of things if somebody wants to um, cultivate that, sorry for the pun, cultivate that relationship uh, with plants. Um, 
uh, for instance, in an urban setting, like you said, uh, people can grow plants in pots or on their fire escape or on their windows, windowsill. They just have to learn which plants will respond well to that. There are also a lot of community gardens, which are wonderful places that, uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, to participate in. They're also uh, um, unexpectedly uh, wild places in cities. And, and for me, I'm not inherently a city person, but I've come to really appreciate the plants that inhabit wild places or neglected places in the city, the plants that come up in abandoned lots or through the cracks in the sidewalk. And I think studying those, even if we don't necessarily harvest them for medicine to tincture or make a tea out of because they're not in the cleanest of environments. Um, to respect what the plants themselves are doing is, um, is really important. You know, those plants are playing a crucial ecological role. So I do think for people in an urban setting, there's a lot they can do, whether it's growing or, uh, or these other things. And, and then uh, for people who have room for a little bit of garden, um, I mean, having a medicine garden, I think, is crucial. And, and we look back historically, and gardens were always um, medicine gardens as much as they were food gardens. Uh, it's, and, and of course, there are a lot of plants that cross over between the two, as we know. Uh, and there are so many herbs. One thing I would say, if, if there's anything, just to answer your question without going on too long about it, one thing I would say is uh, look at the plants that we're all using uh, in large quantities that do well here, that thrive here in our gardens, uh, that we don't have to import from halfway around the world, whether it's Eastern Europe or Russia or China. Not that I have anything against importing herbs I, I, uh, from other places when it's appropriate. I, I do think there's a place for that. But I do think we can do a lot of damage to human communities and to ecological communities when we just suddenly start buying up rhodiola and buying up maca and um, and and focusing on the plants we can grow ourselves. You know, for instance, ashwagandha. I mean, how many herbalists use ashwagandha? It does incredibly well. Now, of course, I'm in the northeastern United States. Um, I can't speak to other climates, but here it does well. A lot of the herbs uh, and plants that are uh, originally from China do incredibly well here. Mm -hmm. So rather than um, transport them around the world and increase our impact on climate change, again, not that I'm against necessarily buying from China. I think that we can trade fairly and well with any part of the world. Um, but, uh, but the more that we do locally, the, the better it is. And that also allows us to get to know the plants themselves too. Um, so I do, I do encourage that. And I could give you more specific examples if you were looking for that. Sure. Too. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, Tulsi. So mm -hmm. Tulsi does wonderfully in most gardens. Um, Chinese sage, Chinese skullcap does well in most gardens. Of course, we have our classics like lavender and thyme and oregano, uh, which do wonderfully in gardens. Uh, garlic, which should never be overlooked as powerful medicine, uh, is probably the easiest plant to grow in the world, in my opinion. <laughs> um, uh, give it good soil and give it sun and you know, that's, and weed it, and that's all it needs. Um, so there are just so many, and of course there are a lot of uh, medicinal plants. So medicinal plants, as this is a generalization, but they tend to be a little bit closer to wild 
to the wild phenotype than mm -hmm. a cultivar. Um, there are exceptions to that, but um, that also means they're fairly vigorous. Uh, they do well. Some of them spread on their own. Um, mm -hmm. So if we if we plant fennel in our garden, again, speaking to at least to my part of the world, we can end up having it spread around on its own, which is a wonderful thing. Um, and some, of course, go a little bit too far, maybe, on that spectrum. So you do want to be a little, little bit careful with uh, some plants that might be um, so vigorous. I don't like the word invasive, so I'm, I'm going to avoid it, but so vigorous that they spread a bit more than we want them to. So that's something to, I, I've definitely made that mistake. So that's something to keep in mind a little bit too. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. So um, another area that I was curious about was nutrition. I know that uh, we traveled a little bit together and I know that uh, vegetarianism is something that you believe in. And, and I know that you teach your uh, patients how to eat well. So when you approach either your patients or when you approach anyone, like how do you speak about food? Like what, what are some of the things that you believe in? Tell us a little bit more. Yeah. And thank you so much for mentioning that. And, you know, it's funny. I, I think that diet uh, which is not a word I'm fond of, by the way. With clients, I tend to talk about food more than I talk about diet. So what's healthy food for you, for instance? Um, I, think, I think diet and food choices are something that, for whatever reason, we could parse it and analyze it. People get incredibly dogmatic about. Um, and I've seen this for years. So um, I... I like to sometimes be in denial about my age, but you know, it's been about 20 years that I've, you know, since I've studied with David, for instance, I think actually uh, next year would be 20 years. Um, and um, so enough to see trends come and go. And with diet in particular, and it'd be, it'd be interesting to hear if you agree with this, I find that people get very quickly overly dogmatic um, and you know we talk about herbs for instance and how we need to individualize to the person somebody needs cooling herbs versus warming herbs so they need more nourishing tonics versus more of a calming sedating action whatever it might be um, but when it comes to diet people like to think in terms of a one-size-fits-all mm. Uh, I have fig I have figured out the way that everybody should eat, and here it is. And if you're not eating this way, you're making a mistake. And very, very judgmental. Um, whether you know we can go back in the past and we can say at one point veganism kind of held the role of being up on its um, arrogant soapbox. <laughs> um, raw foods, which has kind of passed away, but that, that had its moment in the sun. Um, and now we're kind of at a moment where uh, Paleo slash Western Price Foundation, which is different from Western Price himself, um, which we could talk about if, you, if you'd like, but Western Price Foundation um, kind of heavy on animal foods, very um, critical of any kind of vegetarianism is, is kind of the trend and the hip, the, the hip way to look at things, which I think is starting to change. Um, but point being, there's always, it always seems like the, pe the, 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 um, um, the pendulum is at an extreme when it comes to diet versus 
settling in the middle. And um, I, I, I like to be actually in how I work with people and how I teach much less dogmatic about it. So you mentioned I'm a vegetarian, which I am. I've been vegetarian actually for the very large majority of my life at this point. I, I became a vegetarian at age 16, so that I'm now 47. So that's over you know, just over two thirds of my life. And um, I, you know, most of the people I work with don't know that I'm vegetarian. Uh, you know, it's not about me when someone sits down with me to talk about their health, it's about them and me working with them to figure out the best way for them to move forward and feel better physically, emotionally, mentally. And it's, it's not a time for me, I feel, to feed my own ego and impose what I think is right for the world, um, but to really listen to that person and hear what they say. So when somebody is vegetarian or is interested in being vegetarian, I do share that I'm vegetarian often myself because it gives them some information that I'm knowledgeable about it and have experience in it. Um, but otherwise, um, you know, I don't try to convince anyone to become vegetarian unless I feel like it's better for their health. Um, it's not a dogmatic way of being for me. And I do think, um, as many herbalists would say, that gut health and digestion and nutrition are the core. It's one of the things along with physical activity and sleep quality um, that you can't ignore, right? That um, we would make a, be making a profound a mistake of ignoring. So that's always a central focus for me um, in working with people. And I, I do look forward to although I'm uh, uh, cynically not incredibly helpful, uh, hopeful, uh, based on experience, um, uh, to things being a bit more balanced, right? To all of us approaching diet the way we approach herbs. Let's look at this person in front of us and see, do they need more of a cooling, detoxifying, um, descending uh, vegetable-based diet or do they need more kind of warming animal food, uplifting support, uh, or what? What is the correct balance for them? Um, so that's you know in a in a broad brush how I, I approach that issue. I very much like that approach of balance. So thank you, thank you for sharing that. So when yeah. you, when you cook in general, or when you are me making medicines, right? So. Um, as I guess as someone who teaches medicine making, as someone who understands nutrition and has, uh, has knowledge in these areas, how do you evaluate either products that are around you or how do you guide others in terms of selecting things that are, I know that fair trade, sustainability and social justice are big areas uh, and big passions for you. So how do you approach this whole uh, area of medicine making and just cooking and uh, sourcing the ingredients. Could you talk to us about this? Yeah, sure. And it, I'm sure you would have things to add to this too. And and it, it can be bewildering, right? Because um, every day you turn around and there's a company that you, you never heard of before. <laughs> um, a client will come and, and share. I mean, it's constant. Like, no, I never heard of that. You know, it's impossible to keep up with entirely. But um, I think that um, 
you know, I do believe um, deeply that we are what we eat. It's a bit of a cliche, but to go beyond and, and say we are what we absorb, et cetera, et cetera, that's all true too. But the point being that I think it's not just the nutritional content of the food, um, which is important, of course. Um, it, it, it's also the way the food was grown. You know, were people exploited uh, in harvesting it or growing that, that food or medicine? Um, was the land exploited and injured by it? And I think these are real things. I, I, I think we're probably under, underestimating uh, the impact it has on us when we consume these things, right? Um, and we're taught to believe through, and hopefully this isn't overly political um, for you, but I think we're, we're taught to believe uh, uh, through capitalism that it's all anonymous and doesn't matter, right? Get what you want at the best price and it's all fine and good. But uh, what is left out of those equations is incredibly important and deep. And um, so I, I do, like I can give you an example. One of the um, medicinal plants that I more and more consider medicine in a real deep way that I was not necessarily taught as medicine in the way that I now use it is uh, cacao, is chocolate. Um, and we could look at something like chocolate and we can look at its health benefits. It's, it's one of the most powerful antioxidants that we have. Um, it is uh, profoundly helpful for cardiovascular health, um, but it's also a bitter. It helps clear our minds. It's mood and spirit lifting. I find a lot of people um, are energized in a way without feeling overly stimulated from it, but also have their spirits lifted if they're a bit melancholy or depressed. Um, so I, I use it that way. But if we look at the overall industry, we find um, you know, profound levels of child labor and environmental destruction and monoculture. Um, so destruction of native habitats. Um, and so we want to be very careful with um, uh, looking at uh, fair trade, looking, uh, and fair trade is a term that um, is not very well regulated. So we have to parse that and figure out what pe what certain companies are doing and is it legitimate or not. So it can get very nuanced and very complicated and, and we probably can't keep on top of it 100%. But if we if we do our best, um, uh, then I think we're we're in a better place uh, taking it seriously for sure. So how do do you just start the conversation with someone about this, or are there certain resources that you would recommend exploring to really to understand the the issue, the problem, and also understand how you can be part of the solution? Yeah. So with clients, I I try to be careful to realize. They're not coming to me necessarily for an education. I mean, they are, whether they realize it or not. But, 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 um, but to hold that in check, right? To realize, like, okay, they just want to know what they can do. And I, so I, 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 I spend a little less time, but I definitely don't hold back from uh, saying to people about um, 
you know, uh, for instance, the importance of organic food, if they can afford it and if they, they have access. A lot of people don't, so we don't want to judge that either. I think there can be an elitist quality to some of these things. But to, to explain that, you know, this is an environmental issue, this is also a human rights issue for people on those farms being exposed to those chemicals, having them sprayed on them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, um, and, and people can take it or leave it, right? It's, it, uh, I think one of the wonderful things about herbalism is that in my, again, in my opinion, this is the way I practice, is I'm not trying to emulate a physician. I'm not trying to work with somebody the same way an MD is trained to work somebody. I'm not the expert behind the desk telling somebody what to do. Um, there are people who want that, and I'm not, you know, against that either, but I, I don't want to practice that way. What I really see as my role is to help somebody figure out how they can heal themselves. What steps can they take to make themselves feel better? And I'm giving them some advice along the road. Um, so if some of the advice doesn't speak to them, then, uh, then it doesn't speak to them, and that's okay. Um, on the student side, I feel a lot more responsibility to go into depth on some of these issues. And with some clients, I do too, when I see that they have an interest and want to learn more, um, uh, whether it's environmental sustainability uh, or social responsibility. Um, I mentioned rhodiola in passing recently. You know, that's an example of a plant that I'm profoundly concerned about. And it's everywhere. Uh, herbalists are plastering its image everywhere, talking about it everywhere. I think we all collectively need to tamp it down and protect that plant and not use it very much. Um, I'm not saying not use it at all, but not use it very much. And even if we ourselves as individuals are getting it from organic cultivated places, we have to realize that it's disappearing in the wild. And the more we talk about it and tell everybody, hey, rhodiola is the magic herb that everybody needs, um, people are going to buy it up wherever they can find it. Um, and I was sharing recently with my students, you probably are familiar with this, the example of Pygeum, um, which uh, is a Prunus africana, which is, so it's uh, in the rose family related to almonds and cherries and so on. It's a native African plant, the bark of which um, is a very proven remedy for prostate health to reduce prostate enlargement with benign prosthetic hyperplasia and so on. And it has uh, some of the same chemical profile as say salt palmetto berries, some of the same phytosterols. And, um, and it's gone now. Like 20 years ago, when I was uh, first studying herbal medicine, just about every prostate health formula that existed in GNC or the vitamin shop or the herb companies had Pygeum bark in it, and now it's gone. Um, it's not extinct, but it was so over-harvested. And um, students these days coming in don't even know that story. And for me, it's a profound story because I, I don't consider myself old. Probably nobody does, <laughs> but um, but the um, uh, I watched this happen. Right, I've been around enough in the herbal community to actually watch an herb go from popular everywhere to gone uh, because it's no longer available. And we can easily do this, especially in the more privileged 
Western world where we have resources, we can buy things up no matter where it comes from. And I do see this story being repeated with rhodiola and some other herbs. And I feel like it's definitely our responsibility uh, to, in our practice, de-emphasize some of these herbs. Do we really need that or can we use something else? Um, and in how we teach students to really drive it home um, that when something becomes trendy, when something becomes a fad, that often has a very uh, damaging side to it, I think. Thank you, thank you for this. Um, are there specific resources like United Plant Saviors or any other ones that you would recommend our listeners to really learn more about? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to conservation of plants, uh, um, for sure, um, United Plant Savers is, uh, is the first place I would go to to take a look if you're here in the United States. Um, other countries may have others. Uh, there's also um, one resource that I think is overlooked, and, and I would recommend joining United Plant Savers. Our school, for instance, in New York City, automatically enrolls our students as student members. And if anyone listening has an herb school, uh, United Plant Savers has a program uh, for signing up students that at a discounted student rate. And it just off the bat introduces them to that as, as an important ethic. So I would recommend that. Um, the, um, the other thing um, uh, I would say, uh, an overlooked resource here in the United States for uh, educating yourself is, um, of all places, the USDA website. Mm -hmm. uh, the USDA does some damage in the world, but the USDA has a wonderful plant website. Um, I believe it's plants.usda.gov. And they have a page on there where you can learn the conservation status of any plant growing in the United States uh, borders. Um, and not only federal, but state by state. Um, so you could type in Hydrastis canadensis, golden seal, and you can get every single state where it has protected status and then if it has federal status or not. And that that's tremendously helpful to realize oh, maybe I, I shouldn't harvest any of this where I am because even if it's abundant elsewhere, it's not abundant here and, and we want to focus more on protecting it and propagating it. Um, I would also say as people learn botany better and learn um, wild plant populations, um, what I just alluded to, we can actually propagate wild populations plants. Mm -hmm. So conservation is incredibly important but it, conservation also kind of means protecting things from getting lost versus actually nurturing something. And I think we can, we can go further. We can actually nurture and nourish wild plant populations. Um, so for instance, let's take a plant like black cohosh, Actaea racemosa. Um, you could follow a rule of only harvest 10% of it if you find a wild patch but you don't know who else is harvesting from there. Maybe everybody collectively thinking, I'm only taking 10%, ends up taking way too much. Um, instead, knowing that it grows through uh, by rhizome, you know, we can, when we harvest one plant, take some pieces off that have some uh, healthy nodes on them and actually replant uh, four or five little plants to grow in its place. And 
we can do so much more than just um, cutting our losses, in other words. And I, I think the more that we go, kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier, the more we know the plants themselves, um, the more we can um, really interact with them in a symbiotic way instead of uh, an exploitative way. Thank you. Thank you. So you also initially you were talking about botany. We were talking a little bit about medicine making. Are there other resources that you would recommend to our listeners in addition to those that were just uh, mentioned earlier that you would like them to explore? Yeah. So um, so uh, it, it, apart from botany and medicine making or within those? Including, including to, within those, yes. Including. Yeah. So one thing I really recommend when it comes to botany, or we can um, broaden that slightly and include mycology, so mm -hmm. we can include our, our, fun our fungal friends in there too, um, is seek out your local societies. Um, so here in New York State, I've got the Tory Botanical Society and the New York um, Mycological Society. Wherever you are, look for your botanical garden, look for your uh, botany club, um, look for your mycological association. Not all of those people will be interested in the medicinal parts. Most of them I find are pretty um, interested in it, even if they don't know much. They're open-minded people. They're people who like to be outside and be in, in nature. So, um, And you can learn a, an incredible amount from people like that. And um, I think these are fields that lend themselves to people who want to share their knowledge um, rather than hold it tight. And, um, and so I, I absolutely encourage that for one. Um, and the other in terms of uh, medicine making and just studying in general, like I said earlier, there's a big place for studying on your own. So please, like everybody should feel free to study and learn on their own, but to at least in some fashion or other um, learn from somebody. And, you know, one thing I see uh, right now um, going on is, you know, we have this incredible resource of the internet. You and I are talking over it right now. Um, it's, it, it has incredible value uh, and specifically for people who find themselves not in a place where they're near somebody to learn from. I think it's it's so valuable. That said, I think I seem to already see a little bit of a counter trend uh, or um, pushback against overemphasizing online education and people realizing um, that it has its limitations too. So I definitely recommend just look for your local herbalist. I mean, if you have no idea how to start, you can look at the American Herbalist Guild website. and uh, They have a find an herbalist webpage. Not everybody belongs to the American Herbalist Guild, who's a good herbalist. I, I'm active in the association, but uh, um, I also recognize there's lots of good folks outside it. But if you just have no clue where to start, that's a good start. And just see, you might be surprised. Hey, look at that. Somebody's nearby me that I can ask, you know, do you teach workshops or can I come observe you with clients or um, learn uh, how to make tinctures or salves from or whatever it is. And I think that can be incredibly uh, useful too. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. So as we are coming to uh, an end of our uh, discussion, I have a couple of more questions for you. One of them is, is there anything that we have not discussed that you would like this audience to know or 
um, to hear from you. And then my second question would be, how could someone learn more about you or learn more from you? Oh, thank you for that. So the first question, I think we touched on a lot of things. Um, I would say one thing that I like to talk to people about who are interested in herbs or are already members of the herbal community, whether they're students or practitioners or um, that I don't think collectively we're focused enough on is the legal and regulatory landscape. And um, we, you know, um, it's incredibly challenging. It's inc incredibly corrupted in my opinion. At the same time we do, um, at least here in the United States, have a process that we do have a right to weigh in on and it doesn't always work. It malfunctions regularly. At the same time, we can look at many examples where people, if they organized properly, were able to really change something for the good. And um, I do think, uh, I do worry that the herbal community talks a lot about legal and regulatory issues, but isn't doing enough collectively to try to shape our own future. I personally believe in health freedom. I believe that we want to keep herbal medicine as the people's medicine. Um, I'm not, um, I'm not a total anarchist, <laughs> but I lean towards that. I think that we want to keep our freedoms. Um, I think there's a place for uh, making sure that products are safe and they are what they say they are and so on. Um, but I do think there's some um, troubling things going on currently in herbal medicine, not so much on the practice side, but on the manufacturing side. Mm -hmm. I have many students who are um, learning how to make really good medicine, right? So this is something we talked about earlier. You know, how do you actually make medicine? And one of the wonderful things about herbal medicine is we can, we can make it in our own kitchen. We can go out into the woods and gather the plants or into our garden, uh, or even if we purchase the herbs, we can then bring it into our own kitchen and make really effective medicine for people. And it has become all but impossible to legally, at least, start a business um, on that very small scale. And I have many students who are doing that and want to do that. And it's one of the biggest concerns I have about our present and our future right now as a community is um, some of the herb companies that we all know and love and buy from and use regularly, they never could have gotten started in today's landscape. Um, they never would have been able to start small and build. And so I, I, I hope we um, figure out a way to use our collective voice because there are many of us not just practitioners, we think about all the people that we work with, all the people that come to our workshops. There's a huge number of people who actually would say, yeah, we wanna keep our freedom and access to these things, um, but we're not doing a whole lot yet about that. Um, and so I, I, that's one thing that we didn't touch on so much that I'd like to, to throw out there. Um, in terms of myself, so thank you for that. Um, people can go to my website, um, which is uh, richardmandelbaum.com, and uh, they can sign up for my newsletter. I don't send out a whole lot, but just whenever I'm doing something, um, or the school I teach in um, primarily is uh, the Arbor Vitae School of Traditional Herbalism in Manhattan. 
that's in person. So it's not that we, we don't have an online version. Um, but for people who are close enough to New York City, we have a three-year program. And then, like you mentioned, I teach for David Winston, um, for his students, which I, I'm just thrilled to be able to do, and a little bit of, of teaching in other places, too. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, coming to the show and I really appreciate your wisdom. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity. It, it, this was wonderful to, to just chat with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Please check the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 11 for resources that Richard shared with us. If you are not a part of our Facebook Wellness Insider Network community, please join us at facebook.com slash groups slash Wellness Insider Network. You can find this address in the show notes as well. Wellness Insider Network Facebook community is where we talk about health and wellness related news, resources, and recipes to help you have a more resilient and stress-free life. Thank you again for being here. I appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you.